Okay, good to see you all. Um, we are deviating from our regular routine learning. Routine, that's not the right word. From our regular learning that we've been studying with the laws of Akashras, we're going to talk about some uh, elements of Hanukkah. And my goal today is to focus both on some halachic pieces as well as some hashkafic pieces. So elements of Jewish law as well as what we'll call Jewish philosophy and hopefully some ideas that... We could think about as we light the menorah, right? Lighting the menorah is beautiful. It's an, it's it's exciting. It's uh, you know inspiring. It brings back hopefully fond memories. Uh, but we also want it to be a growing experience. So some different some ideas that perhaps we could think about, and maybe some of these ideas will speak to you. One of these ideas will speak to you. Something to contemplate as you light or have someone in the house light the menorah. But before we get there, we're going to focus on a couple different ideas, uh, similar style to what we've been doing with the laws of Kashrut. So I want to go back to some of the primary sources, and in this context specifically focusing on elements of Hanukkah that relate to women, okay? So we're not going to be reading the sources as we do in our, on our, in our Kashrut shir, because uh, it's just me writing little snippets of, from Gemaras as opposed to really going through the sources in Hebrew. But one way or another, I think we'll walk away with, I hope, a little bit more knowledge about uh, some of the halachos that pertain to, specifically to women and Hanukkah, okay? So let's begin. The Gemara in Shabbos tells us, and if you again source sheets on the Bima, if you didn't grab one yet, um, the Gemara in Shabbos tells us that women... Certainly light. They certainly light the menorah. As Rabbi Shub and Levi taught, women are obligated in Ner Hanukkah, as they were also in the miracle. Now, why is Rabbi Shub and Levi expressing the fact that women are obligated to light the menorah? Why does he have to tell us that? You know, women are obligated to keep Shabbos. What is unique about the laws of Hanukkah that you would have thought that women are not obligated? It's time bound, right? It's a mitzvah asesha, man grama. It is a time bound mitzvah. We know that any mitzvah that is limited to a particular time of day is something that typically women are exempted, right? So uh, lighting the menorah specifically takes place at night from, we'll talk about some of the times, but it's specifically limited to nighttime as opposed to day. And therefore, left to our own devices, we would assume that women are exempt from lighting the menorah. However, the Gemara tells us that since they were also in the miracle. Okay, what do those words mean? They were also in the miracle. Okay, so first of all, you should just know that there are two other places that we find this terminology. One is Kriyasa Megillah, the reading of the Megillah, where it also says women are obligated to hear the reading of the Megillah because they also were part of that, they were in that miracle. And the other example that's given is the Dalit Kosos, the four cups of wine that we have on Pesach night. Okay, let's keep that in the back of our mind because it'll be relevant to what we're about to see. So there are two basic approaches found in the medieval commentators explaining what this means. One is Rashi. Rashi suggests that the reason that women are equally obligated in the mitzvah of Hanukkah candles is that women were also threatened, just like the men were, when it came to the Hanukkah story, or the story of Purim, or the story of Pesach. And therefore, since both men and women were saved, we all have to celebrate. How could women not celebrate? We were threatened, again, when it comes to Hanukkah, not physically, but spiritually, the, the religious experience was threatened, not just for men, but for men and women alike. And therefore, since we were saved, since the Maccabees and God saved us, therefore we would have to, women would have to celebrate as well. However, the Rashbam says that the Rashbam, again, is a grandson of Rashi. He says a different idea. He says not that women were equally saved, but rather women... I'm sure this is a, probably a more famous explanation, is that women were part of the saving, that women played an instrumental role in the salvation of the Jews in this story. So let's go through the stories. 
Pesach, we know that there is, uh, whether it's uh, Miriam and Yocheved and their bravery, or Batya, right? We have different women who play, and the, the Midrashim that tell us that the Jewish people, there would not be any Jewish people because the men essentially gave up on pru on procreation, and it was the women who encouraged them to procreate. So there is this big emphasis on the emuna and the faith of the women expressed through all those different stories. The story of Megillah, there's no need to explain, uh, okay? And the story of Hanukkah, what's the, how do women play a role in the story of Hanukkah? Yehudit or Yehudis or Judith, right? So the truth is, you know, let's just do this right now. Sorry, this is just, um, let's, so if you turn to the next page, we're going to come back to, we'll come back to what we're in the middle of. Uh, but this is, this is a quote from the Ramah and he gets into this whole question of Yehudis. Again, there are source sheets on the Bima. This is a quote from the Ramah, the top source. He says like this, Shal isha ir lahem because through a woman, through a woman, the, the, the miracle, the great miracle happened. Her name was Yehudas. There is an Agadaic teaching. Okay, uh, This Agadaic teaching is actually first found in a book called the Book of Judith, uh, which is not a canonized book. It's not part of our quote-unquote tradition, but it's later found in later Midrashim, which do make it into Jewish sources. That Yochanan Kohen Gadol had a daughter. She was very beautiful. And the king of Greece, or this presumably most understand this means like a local governor that represented the Greeks, uh, requested or demanded, Shetishkav Imo, that he lay with her, Vachilaso Tafshil Shel Gvina, okay, and famously she gives him food of, that is dairy, like cheeses, Kadesh Yitzma, so that he would be thirsty, Rav, then he would drink a lot. Okay, keep in mind, back in the day, they didn't have a variety of drinks, they had one type of drink. And it was alcoholic, right? So if you were drinking, you were drinking alcohol. That's basically all they had. Everyone drank beer. Beer was the regular drink. There was no coffee. Crazy, right? Uh, fine. That's all they had. All they had was alcohol. Vishtaker, and he would get drunk. Vishkav, and uh, he would lie down. Literally, what that actually means is that they were intimates together. Vyaradim, and would fall asleep. Vahilachain, and this was exactly the case. Vishkav, Vyardim, he lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. Vatikach, Charbo, she took his sword. Vichatcha, Rosho, and she cut off his head. Vativiel, Yushalayim, and she brought the head back to Yushalayim. Ukirosa, Chayel. And when the Greek army saw Kimes Giborim, Agiboram, that their strong one, their general or their governor died, they ran away. And this is why there is a custom to have cheese or dairy items on Hanukkah. Okay, so this is brought down by their mods. Also brings another custom. Anyone have that custom? That women don't work during the times the candles are lit? Okay. Pretty impressive. Okay. Others like, uh, nothing would happen in our house if we wouldn't work. That's a ridiculous idea. Okay. Uh, so, sorry? For a half hour, okay, right? Reasonable, right? <laughs> Anything more than that, it would be a disaster. Okay, I got it. Okay, so, right, so there are two customs that are born out of this, uh, this uh, Agadeic teaching. The truth is, both between historians and traditional sources, the Arach HaShochan, among them, Arav Yaakov Emden, all basically argue, based on earlier sources that, sources that are found, this story probably didn't actually happen during the time of Hanukkah. Such a mean thing for me to share, right? Okay, but, but just, just, just so you should know. Okay, so the, the, there, there is, the, the earliest sources actually talk about this, a story, similar story taking place during, the, during a Persian era, during some time, and we have a lot of uh, complication when it comes to um, history and the Persians in terms of when these a- episodes took place. But it seems, according to many, the story actually took place, some version of the story took place under Persian rule, not under Greek rule. Nonetheless, for different reasons, it seems like there was a choice to celebrate this during Hanukkah, and therefore, that's done. 
Sorry. Uh, but one, one way or another, that's, that's uh, okay. So one way or another, this, this episode involving this woman, and whether it was Yehudas, the daughter of Yochanan, or some other woman, with this is specifically celebrated. This heroism is celebrated during the holiday of Hanukkah. And okay, fine. Yes. Correct, correct, correct. So there, there are those who argue this never happened at all. It's impossible for us to, you know, when we talk about, when we get into those types of, you know, bottom line is, you know, our earlier sources are all we have. So we don't have conflicting sources that say it didn't happen. And you have early sources, yeah. So one thing, you know, you have to analyze them critically, but, but we do have some cl- early sources. But yeah, there's certainly a, a significant, e- very clear parallel between the story of Yael and Sisra and the story, which leads to a question, but... We have sources. Okay. So one way or another, right? Whether women were saved or whether women were part of the critical role in the saving, we have this idea um, that women that women are therefore obligated in the mitzvah of Hanukkah. Okay? Um, so Tosvos in Psachim asked the following question. We're going back to the first page. He says, if that's the case, if that's the case, what about other miracles that we were involved that women were involved in? For example, sukkah. What are we celebrating when we're celebrating Sukkot? We're celebrating the fact that God protected us in the desert. Well, guess what? There are men and women there. Why don't women celebrate? So Tosos gives, uh, gives an interesting answer. He says this is true, and it's hard to understand why. Maybe some food for thought. But he says that this is true only for rabbinic laws. Right? He says that this is a rabbinic institution. When the rabbis instituted their laws, there, if women were involved... Then they included, uh, if women were involved, whether they were a part of the salvation, whether they were equally saved, in the rabbinic institutions, they formulated it that both men and women would celebrate and be obligated in the mitzvah. But biblical laws would fall back to the regular biblical principle that if it's a mitzvah asesha, as man grama, if it's a time-bound mitzvah, then women are not obligated. And therefore, just to go through all these different mitzvahs, you know, the Dalit Kosas, the four cups of wine that we have on Pesach, is actually a rabbinic law. Okay, sukkah to eat in a sukkah is biblical, right? So therefore, the four cups of wine, women are obligated. The law of um, the law of sukkah, women are not obligated. Many women do, nonetheless. But in terms of an obligation, many do not. One way or another, where there's an interesting debate, and if, for those of you with a good memory, shofar. sorry, yeah, shofar. shofar, most would say they're not. Right, well, we uh, yes and no, yes and no. Meaning, there is a, there is a dis- big distinction between Sephardim and Ashkenazim in terms of saying a bracha on a mitzvah that women are not obligated to do. So, for example, uh, if you sat in the sukkah this past sukkah, you likely said a bracha, or you you should have said a bracha, or heard someone say a bracha and say amen. Or if you know, and, and the reason for that, and, and we talked about this in the last semester, like earlier a few months ago, um, whereas Sephardim say, how could we say Asher Kiddishanu, that you commanded us to do this? You didn't command us to do this. We're taking this on upon ourselves. But the Ashkenazi custom is that women do actually say that even when they're not obligated, okay? Where there is some debate, and again, we talked about this a few months ago, is Sudach Lishi, Shalashudis, right? Is the th- right? Why do we have three meals on Shabbos? We're commemorating the man which is also some form of God saving us, right? So if the idea, like Rashi, is that it's anywhere where women were impacted, then women should also be a part of this, okay? Uh, it might go back to a question which we discussed then as well, is Shalashudas biblical or rabbinic? According to some, it's biblical. That would actually exempt, counterintuitively, would exempt women, okay? Is this too much information? Let's just, to summarize though, the most important thing that we're talking, walking away from here is that when it comes to Nero's Hanukkah, women are absolutely obligated just as much as men are obligated. And that will play a significant role in some of the halachos that we're going to see. But one way or another, again, women are absolutely obligated, whether the understanding is that they were equally saved or they played an instrumental role in the saving. One way or another, the obligation for men and women is equal when it comes to Shabbos. 
Uh, yes, was there a question? No, okay. Yes? What about MRSA? So, yeah. Okay, not, not, you know, not eating hummus, but having yes. MRSA. So, isn't that time bound? It is time bound. It is, there might be a different level of obligation there. Come back to before Pesach. But you're still obligated to eat matzah. Sorry. The short answer, don't walk away with the wrong answer. You're obligated to eat matzah. What the nature of the obligation is, we'll, we'll come back to. But, yeah, yes. If a woman is bound, uh, obligated for that mitzvah, is she able to level see a man? So let's get to that right now. Okay, okay good. So the Gemara in Shabbos, excellent. No, no, no. You're the, exactly, you're right, the right track. This is exactly where we're going, okay? So the Gemara in Shabbos for, further uses a, a famous terminology when describing the mitzvah of lighting Hanukkah candles. And it says the mitzvah is ner ish u beito. Literally means a candle, a person, and their house, or for their house. Okay, so the, the, those words are a little bit cryptic, but it, the question is what exactly is the obligation when it comes to lighting? The terminology, again, that's used is a candle, each person, u beito, literally, and their house, or for their house. Okay, so let's, let's come back to that terminology, but let's now specifically address the question that was just asked. So there is a general principle in halacha, okay, which has a role in many places, which is called ishto kigufo, that a person's spouse is just like them. So for example, someone who is married, uh, let's say the husband would go ahead and do hataras nadarim, okay? So before Rosh, before Rosh Hashanah, uh, they go ahead and they annul their vows. So typically, uh, typically uh, when it comes to a couple, the, the husband would go ahead and annul these vows, what about the wife's vows? Okay, so one way of addressing this is simply saying, ishto kigufo, that it's a family, that the husband in this case is representing uh, his wife as well, and therefore there is no obligation to do so. And the Eliyah Rabbah, okay, one of the important later commentators suggests that because of this, when it comes to a household, although the Gemara tells us that the mahadrin mina mahadrin, the ideal way to light on Hanukkah is that every individual lights the number of candles per night, right? Not just one person lighting. But when it comes to one spouse, the husband, in the Eliyahu Rabbah says, is allowed to, is lighting in with, the, with his wife in mind. And therefore, she does not have to light. Okay? So based on the principle of Ishto Kigufo, to the point that one could maybe even argue that if that principle is so true, it might even be problematic for her to light because it's almost like me lighting twice, right? I cannot light, I can't say a bracha lighting twice. So if a person, if it's true, ishto kigufo, that a person's wife is like them, like the husband, let's say, and he lights, for her to light afterward would possibly be a bracha levatala, would be a bracha that's unnecessary. Unless she okay. lights without a bracha. Unless she, certainly, if she would light without a bracha, that would certainly be true. Correct, correct. Now, uh, certainly, if they're not certainly, I should say, but uh, a woman who is unmarried, a woman who's not married, uh, even living in her, in her parents' home, would, would have an obligation to light because the whole principle is ishto kegufo, right? So it would, it's not a matter of men versus women. Again, as we just saw, women are equally obligated as men are, right? So the only possible reason why a woman wouldn't light is if she is married and her husband is lighting and therefore exempting her. But the dot, women who are living in the household, would be obligated to light. There are some, there are some, and I'll take a question in a second, Charlie. There are some who have the custom that women, even living in a household with their parents, do not light. It's very hard to understand any of the reasons. The reasons are given, my humble opinion, are a little bit of a stretch. Uh, it would seem to be most logical that women who are not married, even if they're living in their parents' home, so young girls or whatever it is, uh, or older people, whatever, anyone living in a household with their parents, they would still light the menorah. Yes, Charlie. 
because it would be so you're saying oh, would a married should should a married woman if her husband yeah so like you said a it's not really there's no really bracha levatella in is it necessary yeah I, I I wouldn't be as because there's no bracha elements involved it's there's there's less of a less of a concern less of a concern um, and, and it's a yeah. I would also say it's a bit of a novel application when it comes to... Okay, yeah, so I, I, the short answer is it wouldn't be problematic. I certainly wouldn't say there's, there's an obligation to do so. Yeah, I saw some other hands, I think. No? Okay, great. Yes? So uh, that's what I'm going to bring us back. But what is the rationale for the Rabbanim saying, like, the biblical laws, Hashem said, like, you know, hang on, mitzvah, not obligate women, they're busy, they have stuff going on. What are the rationales? <laughs> yes, uh, it's a great question. Uh, it's a great question, right? Typically, we have a principle in the to- in, in, in the Talmud uh, when any rabbinic institution is pre- is 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 uh, modeled after biblical institution. Okay, called rabbanon That whenever the rabbis instituted something, they do so modeling it after the Torah. This is a very clear exception to that. Um, there are answers, and I'm being honest. I blanking on them right now, but this is addressed. Sorry? The qu- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The question was that what's going on? The Torah, God says in the Torah that if it's time bound, women shouldn't do it. The rabbis come along when they create institution. They say, well, actually, we think we have a better idea. Like, mm, seems a little off, right? And it's not just that it seems off. This is a general principle that they model. That obviously, it makes sense. They're modeling after the Torah. So why don't they do so over here? I don't remember. I'm sorry. Just be honest. Okay. Um, Rav Soloveitchik, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik, I would point out, does argue this pr- whole principle. He says, Ishto kigoof over here. You could only say that in certain very limited principles. But over here, we're talking about an action. We're talking about an action, meaning I can't say, you know, there, there's a lot of discussion about how far reaching an element of, of shlichut is, an element of, of, um, of, of uh, you know, using someone as an agent. So, for example, if, uh, if my friend doesn't want to put on tefillin today, I can't say, well, as your agent, I'm going to put on tefillin on myself, right? I could say kiddush for someone else. I can't put on tefillin for you or a man, right? Uh, I can't. I can't be your agent to do an action. So if Soloveitchik pushes back, he says the whole notion of a man lighting for his wife, he says it's wrong. He says women should be lighting by themselves with a bracha, and Ramosha Feinstein, actually, in some recently published writings, uh, actually, uh, recently published, meaning some, some, there were notes that were taken by some, some talks that he gave, he actually records that in his own hometown, women would actually, wives, meaning married women, would actually light the menorah in their hometown with a bracha, okay? Um, and that's what they did. And that's what they did. He says in his own, he writes it, he says in his own home, his wife did not grow up that way, and therefore he didn't, you know, he let her, you know, do what she was accustomed to doing. Uh, he didn't impose upon her this, this custom, but he writes even in his own hometown this was done. And there's a good argument to be made, I think. We'll make a quick poll over here. For those who are married, do you light menorah? No. Yes? yes? Okay. Okay. I have a question. Yeah. I've been in a lot of places, and... I'm not going to, I can't, to say wrong would be, uh, I don't know. I, I, there, there are those who justify the custom, but, but to me, very, very stretched. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't go like throw rocks at people who don't have the women lighting. Okay. I, I'm, you know, but I mean, there, there's what's to rely upon. It's, 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 it's a hard justification. It's a hard justification. You know, the, 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 the reasons, like one reason is, well, since one day, you know, hopefully she'll get married and therefore she shouldn't light it now. Okay. I don't know. I don't, I don't, we don't have such a principle anywhere else. Like, that, I don't know. I don't know what that means. So it's, it's like the, the answers to me seem like post facto justifications for a custom that evolved, which, which sometimes halacha works that way. But um, my house, my daughter's life. Okay. But yeah. Um, 
Yes. Was there a question? No. Okay. Um, okay. So the bottom line is, let's just quickly summarize um, what to do in, 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 in practically. So there, there are those who argue, and I would say a more prevalent custom, we just saw that in the poll over here, a more prevalent custom is that, uh, we'll start over here. Women are absolutely obligated to light the menorah. Period. Okay? Women are absolutely obligated just like men are obligated. However, in a scenario where there is a married couple, uh, there is an argument to be made that the man lights and exempts his wife. Okay? Um, and that seems to be for many the prevalent custom. There's a good argument to be made that that should not be and both should light. Uh, when it comes to beyond the actual couple, uh, other women in the household, uh, they're... I think the majority of places, I think, uh, women do light, but there are those who argue that women should not light. I would argue that, I would just point out, according to the Elia Rabba's arguments of Ishto Kigufo, there is no notion of the man being like the one who should light. You know, for many, this is the custom. It's what I do. I light. My wife doesn't light. Uh, but in all, you know, there, it, all things are equal over here. In other words, there are scenarios where, for example, Kiddush on Friday night, uh, there is a halachic discussion about a man's obligation and a woman's obligation being different. The man's obligation may be biblical or maybe rabbinic. There, 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 are distinct, there are times where there might be distinctions, and then it gets more complicated. Who does the action, okay? But here, the obligation is equal. So in as much as, again, the prevalence, I would say, just from the show of hands over here, prevalence custom is that men are the ones who are, a husband is doing so for one's wife. There's absolutely no reason, there's, from, a, from a purely like, uh, conceptual place, there'd be no difference if the wife would like for her husband. And some places, uh, this would certainly be the, the scenario where it would be more ideal, as we'll see shortly. Yes? Okay, so we, we, we both like. Mm-hmm. But if Barry's stuck at work, ah, okay. he says, well, you can like for me. Good. But if we both like, does that mean that I shouldn't, like... If you both light, then he, there's no concept of you lighting for him, then you would light, and he would light when he comes home. But I, so I can't light for him. You, you could, well, yes and no. Could we, could we remind me in a second? We're going to come back to that question because we're going to focus on that right now, okay? But, but your scenario, remind me if I don't, if I don't address it. Okay. Um, okay. So w- let's go back to the terminology that we saw in the Gemara. The Gemara said, Ner ish ubeso. There's this emphasis on the candle and the house. Okay, the question is, what does that mean? Does, is the Gemara just telling us that the candles are lit in a home as opposed to someone who perhaps doesn't have a home, right? This is, okay, so either we could talk about someone who is homeless or let's say a, a, a scenario which comes up from time to time, someone's traveling, traveling to Israel, let's say, right? So you're, you got in the, yeah, okay, so, oh, what are you doing tonight? Tonight will be a candle lighting, tomorrow okay. going to be in London. You have somewhere to stay though. We were told that someone is coming, should come into our Ah, home. excellent, okay, very good, very good. Okay, excellent. Okay, good. Good, 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 good. Excellent. We're going to get to that. That's good, good, good. You got good guidance. Okay, um, okay. So, so but you have scenarios where someone is traveling and they're traveling all night and they're in a, you know, an airport and they're traveling all night. They don't have a house in which they collide, right? So is it, is, so that, that might be one focus, right? But uh, so, so the question is, is it just the place uh, that a person should, you know, the, in, in, in Talmudic terminology or, or a later Talmudic terminology that we use to analyze any section of Talmud, we say, is the chovras gavra? Is there an obligation on the person and the house is just the place that we do it? Or, like it was just kind of alluded to, is it a chovat habayis? Is there an obligation on the home and it's not so much about me lighting and the home is just a place, but there's an obligation on my home having candles, which is what's happening in your home. Right. You're not there. You're not lighting. Right, right, right. So, so there is lighting taking place in the home, 
but you're not lighting there, right? So this is this is a discussion around the, this specific terminology, right? So, um, but a house is not a home if you're not there. <laughs> I know it sounds like a home. <laughs> <laughs> um, so okay, so bias in this context, I'm going to be more precise in my terminology. Is a house and not a home, uh, but yes, uh, and it's still your home even out there. But anyway, you still pay the bills. <laughs> Good, good, good. So this is based on this principle. Good. So this is based on this principle. So let's keep, let's, exactly, exactly. So let's keep this, this, this equation in the back of our mind, and we'll go through a couple of practical applications. It's a bit of a debate, um, and we try to fulfill as many options as possible. So one scenario, which is a much more straightforward scenario, is, um, actually, it's, it's one important halacha before. I apologize uh, for this not being as straightforward, but one important halacha, you know, many of us learned when we were younger that when, how late can you light? And he'll tell you, the Gemara says that when people stop walking, you know, the when people stop walking home from the market, so the end of the workday or something, right? Which, I don't know, Baltimore is like, I don't know, three o'clock, I'm just kidding, that's a good, but, uh, but, but it's early, it's early, it's not like, you know, it's not like, you know, so late. So the truth is, the truth is all later postgames say that nowadays people are traveling, you open your, you sit outside your house for enough time, people will drive by, I don't care where you live, people are, they're cars, they're people driving by, and therefore, halacha lemaisa, practically speaking, a person is allowed to light until dawn, until dawn, okay? So, in a scenario where you have, let's say, a family, and some members are coming home late, okay, so you light later, I'm coming home at 12 o'clock, who cares, that's fine, you light then, no problem, okay? So, but let's say you have a scenario, fine, so in a scenario where a person's coming home late, you just wait for them, and you light then, okay? No problem at all. The one thing I would just mention as a caveat, I'm sorry I didn't write this over here, is that there is a general principle, if you have an obligation to do something, a mitzvah, you're not supposed to do anything else before that or anything that could be involving, like involved. Okay, so you can have like a quick snack. You can't have a meal, right? Anything that's really going to drag your attention. So what happens, you know, some, you know if, if, you, uh, if you're only going to be able to light, 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 light later in the night. So in those, these scenarios, if you have some form of a reminder, then it's okay, right? So the, the postgames speak about asking someone to remind you. Nowadays, we have this wonderful little thing called a phone, which we live on, and you set an alarm. I'm going to be home at 12.30. I set my alarm for 12.30 you know, a.m., and now I can eat my meals. I can do whatever I need to do because I have an external reminder, and that's fine. So again, in a scenario where people are coming home late, you could just light later, and that's not a problem, okay? In a with scena- a reminder. Sorry, with a reminder. Well, the reminder, is, the reminder is a good idea regardless, but the reminder is certainly important if you want to go ahead and start other things, like have a meal at that point or anything of that nature. But what about working? Working would be a same. If, so I, the reason I don't mention working is if you've already started, then you might have an, a, a, an allowance to continue. But certainly if you're starting like a new project or something like that, you should set an alarm. Okay. Um, okay. So let's say you have a scenario, and this goes a little bit to Shelley's scenario. Let's just break it down into different possibilities. I just want to say, the reason he has me eat for him, I mean light for him, is so that he can eat because he's very mm. Okay, good. So certainly if you have him in mind. So, so, let's, let's, so we'll go through both scenarios, right? Because we have two groups of people in this room. Uh, well, three groups of people, I would say. But, but two groups of, of married people in the sense that some people, they marry uh, the, one person in their family lights and one where they both light, right? So in a scenario where they, one person lights, so if one spouse, you know, let's say is coming home late or, you know, sometimes this happens to me, I'm kind of coming home late and the kids are going to go to sleep. So I'll tell my wife, you go ahead and light with the kids. So they've all been there. But then I don't have an obligation. I cannot light at that point. It'd be forbidden for me to light, right? Because in my family, and again, in many families, one person for the couple lights. And therefore, if my wife is lighting, I do not light that night, okay? Um, 
in a scenario. So that would be so one that's a, some, somewhat of a more straightforward scenario where again, if one person is not home, uh, then the other person lights for them, and that would be true as well if I'm traveling. So this is uh, we'll go through different examples. One is I'm coming home late, and I'll just ask my wife to light for me, and that'd be true even in your scenario where you both light. If you're explicitly doing this for your husband. You've lit for him, and that's totally fine. It's in your home. You're lighting for him. Totally fine. And he's fulfilled his obligation. It's ideal if the lights are still lit when he comes home, okay? But, but really, he's fulfilled his obligation, or vice versa, a husband doing it for his wife. Totally, totally fine fulfilling the obligation. Where it's a little bit more complicated um, is if they're staying elsewhere, okay? Let's say you have one person, let's say you have, again, a couple, let's say, and one of them is staying home, and one of them is staying elsewhere. So in that scenario... If let's say, let's go, let's go, let's just say I'm, I'm staying at a friend's house uh, in a different state and my, my wife is, is lighting in my home. So if she lights, I can't light at my friend's home at that point because again, it'd be a bracha levatala. So what I should do is one of, typically what we do is we, uh, we ask the place where we're staying to have us in mind. Some people go ahead and they give the person a little bit of money to buy some of the oil. Some suggest they have to add some of the oil. The bottom line is that if they have you in mind, then that's okay because then I'm not saying an extra bracha. I'm saying I'm main to their brachos. And that's like the safest scenario to do. That's if I'm staying somewhere else. If I'm staying on my own somewhere else, I'm staying at a hotel, right? Then uh, what I could do is make sure to light before my spouse. Okay? Are with me still? Sorry, too many permutations? Yeah, with me? Right? So in a scenario... Yeah, you have to be in the same time zone. That's right. If you're in a different time zone, this doesn't work. Thank you. Yeah. That's half the scenarios. Okay, so yeah, if you're in the same time zone, then what you would do, what the ideal thing to do is, let's say I'm staying at a hotel... I would light before my wife, okay? And then she would light afterwards, and then there's no extra bracha because I'm lighting because I'm staying in this place. She's lighting uh, in the house, okay? But as long as, but if she did it before me, since it's in my home, that's a more primary mitzvah, I would not therefore say the bracha. Everyone still with me? Okay, yeah, good. By the parenthetically, where do you light in a hotel? I wouldn't recommend it. But the window's usually, uh, you know, uh, blacked out, right? You usually can't see anything from the window. It depends on the hotel, but oftentimes. <laughs> Sorry? There's no mezuzah. Yeah, but there's no mezuzah. So theoretically, the doorway, but very often hotels actually have like a very narrow, that's most of the ways they're, they're structured is there's usually, a, the bathroom is usually there. I think it's like a typical hotel layout. Uh, so typically, there's no room even in the doorway over there. So the truth is in a hotel, you just light anywhere in the room uh, in terms of the fire alarm. Been done many times. Don't worry about it. Uh, just like use tea lights. Don't lose like oil stuff. Whatever. But if you lose tea lights, I've lit a billion candles in, in hotels. Shabbos candles, Hanukkah candles. Nothing has happened. So uh, you'll be okay. Yes. I, I just want to go back before. If you're staying in a hotel, yeah, I never go away. My kids are going away. Yeah. Okay. If they're lighting where they're away, does somebody have to light in their home? So the short answer so is good. Do so. So, so you do not. So, so let's go back to the scenarios that were listed mentioned before. So in a scenario where I am staying somewhere else, um, and this is like my, I'm going for vacation or I'm staying at a hotel, whatever it is, then I light in that place and do not have to worry about my home. Uh, because we rely on those who say, it's not really idea of the house. It's that it's where I am and it's the, you know, and I light in a house, but it's not really about my home. However, theoretically, Right. Theoretically, most posts can say it's not necessary. So, so let's be clear. If you're traveling during Hanukkah, then you would light wherever you are staying. Okay. Um, where it gets more complicated again is if you don't have a place, you're not staying anywhere that night. You're in a hotel, you're in a, you're in a, you're in a, you know, on a plane, you're in a hospital, right? So in scenarios like that, what you really should do is have someone go to your home and light the candles 
for you. Okay? That would be the right thing to do in that scenario because at the very least, you're fulfilling one interpretation interpretation of Ishu Veso. Yes? They're going to a wedding on Thursday night. Okay. They said they're, sending out, they're, they're putting up an order for what do you think? Shall we plug it home? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so there's, there's, yeah. So lighting, um, yeah. There, there'd be no just. So the only time, okay. And here, here's, here's where this stuff, where this does come up. Um, if a person, so a person's home. I'm sorry, these, my notes are not as clear as they should be. I apologize. I wrote this like an hour ago. I apologize. Okay, so. Um, in a per- when a person is home, then even if they're eating out somewhere else, okay, this comes up all the time. I'm having a Hanukkah party, right? Someone just asked me on the way out from the show this morning. Having a Hanukkah party tonight, I'm leaving, so, so let's, this happens all the time. We go somewhere else for a Hanukkah party, right? Where do I light, right? People want to light at a Hanukkah party. Should I light over there? So as long as you're leaving your home after a time called Plag HaMincha. Plag HaMincha is hard to define exactly. You can look it up on, you know, myzmanim.com, but essentially it's halachically the earliest time that we consider evening. It's still light outside, Okay, but it's, it's, it's whatever, it's towards evening, okay? Any time plas plag mincha, you can light your menorah with a bracha, okay? And you should light. So if you're going to be gone, you know, let's say, and when do we do, when do we take advantage of this? Shabbos afternoon, right? Shabbos afternoon, no one lights at sunset. It's Shabbos, right? You don't, certainly don't light at nightfall. It's really, really Shabbos, right? So when do we light? We light any time after plag mincha, after this earliest evening time, okay? So if you are going out, whatever it is, and you're, you're not going to be around, either you light after Plaga Mincha, or you light when you come home later in the evening, because again, you can light till any time. Sometimes a person's going to be going out of town, right? But they are leaving after Plaga Mincha, you light at Plaga Mincha, okay? Um, in a scenario where you're out of town, you're not sleeping at your own home, and now you have one place where you're sleeping and one place where you're eating, okay? So here the question is, which one is your primary home? In that scenario, the primary home is the place that you eat. Eat, yeah. So the Rashba is machlokas, but we paskin that it's the place you eat. So the guests of the wedding who are coming from out of town, 100% they should be lighting there. But, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's in New York. Okay, then yes, then you should light over there, 100% because that's where you're eating, right? But if you were, if you were at a wedding here or any New Yorkers there, uh, they should light in their own home, right? So again, you're with me? So in other words, if, it's, if you're in your own home and you're going to a Hanukkah party, you still need to light in, if you're in town, you're going to a Hanukkah party, you do not light at the Hanukkah party, you light in your own home, okay? Um, whether at nightfall, Plaga Mincha, um, and then, but if you are traveling and you're choosing between the place that you're sleeping or the place that you're eating, it's the two separate places, then you light in the place that you eat. So that's why they're sitting those menorahs for people like yourself who are not staying there, right? If you're, not, if you're staying overnight, then you would light uh, in, in that place. Uh, yes? Uh, okay. <laughs> do you have to do like you do on Erev Shabbat where you have to ah, add oil so that Good. Okay, good. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, I, yes, yes. And I'm sorry, I'm jumping around a lot, but let's, let's, uh, let's, let's do that right now. In a scenario where on, on Erev Shabbat... I'm sorry, I apologize. This is not... And these notes are... Uh, I don't know how helpful they are. But in a scenario where a person is lighting on Erev Shabbat, or so any time they're lighting early, yeah. it's critical that the candles burn for a half hour after nightfall, what is called Seisa Kochavim. Okay, so on Erev Shabbos, the little cute little candles that come in those little boxes they give you, not going to work. They'll be done. Okay, so you need to either have a large candle or you have oil, whatever. Uh, but basically, you want to have some something that's going to last for a while because you're lighting quite early and it has to last for quite some time. Okay, was there Cyril? And then. Great question. Great question. So, so strictly speaking, strictly speaking, you fulfill the mitzvah of Hanukkah with one candle. Okay. So, uh, with one candle each night, each night you could technically, if you're really stuck, you could technically light one candle. 
the whole idea of Mahadrin is that we light the re- other candles. Mahadrin and Mahadrin is that, uh, you know, Mahadrin is like, means, I don't know, better. It's like more, you know, that other people are lighting as well. But technically, you could just use one candle. And sometimes I do this on, on a Friday night. It depends where, if I'm traveling or whatever it is. I certainly, you know, the challenge is like this. You can't have, like, the children light. If their children are going to light with a small candle, then they're saying a bracha levatala, right? They're saying a bracha that is, that is not a real bracha because the candle's not going to last the requisite amount of time. And so in a scenario like that on, let's say, a Friday you know, afternoon, um, only the people are going to light with a longer you know, candle. But let's say, to Cyril's point, if you just want to have, let's say you only have one candle or just enough oil. Wow, the Hanukkah miracle. And just have one, a big enough oil to last, have one of them last for a long time. The rest of them are just going to last for a little, that's fine. Because as long as one of them is lit to last for that half hour, you 100% fulfill your mitzvah. 1,000%. Yes. Okay, so let's say I'm going to my son's for Shabbat. So do I, should I give him money and be Yosef his candle lighting or bring my own menorah or? You're going to him. So, so your son here, right? You're going to your son in Baltimore. In Baltimore. Yeah. You're probably going to sleep there. So one of two things, uh, one of two things, uh, either you could light at home. I know people are very hesitant to, to light in their home if they're not going to be there. Okay. Uh, so if you're staying at this, you know, so if you, if you leave, you know, anytime within an hour or so before Shabbos, you could light at your home. And just, you know, okay, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, then yes, you could light at your, at your, at your son's house or have him light for you and have him, yeah, 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 yes. If you light after nightfall, like, you know, nine o'clock at night, do you need to use, do they need to last for 30 minutes? They need to still last for 30 minutes. 30 minutes is the requisite time after nightfall. So if you light after nightfall, 30 minutes, you can use a small, you know, little candles. Uh, If you light earlier, you have to make sure that it lasts for 30 minutes past nightfall. Yes. Well, I'm, two scenarios, one where there's a spouse who's, Staying in a hotel, and one where there's a spouse who's coming home late. Mm-hmm. And in one situation, even though the other spouse lit already, the spouse came home is now allowed to light. But in the hotel, if the spouse lit already, you're not allowed to. And if you're staying somewhere else, you're not allowed. To. The, spouse, the other spouse. I'm using spouses. Maybe I should just be confusing. Um, so let's say, let's say <laughs> the husband's out and the wife is at home. Right. And she lights. Mm-hmm. And he comes home later. He's supposed to light. No. So if if for those for those who have the custom, sorry if I wasn't clear, for those who have the custom that both spouses light, that's fine. For most people, if you don't normally do that, then you the husband should not be. So so no so if 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 there if if one spouse lit at home and the cu- that couple's custom is that one person lights for both of them, then regardless of who lit in the home, they should not light after. Okay, it's in a scenario where they both have the custom of lighting, then it's fine if they light at a later time, because... But, but, but how many men actually know this? That their, <laughs> that their wife took care of it? Now? I don't know. <laughs> 35. <laughs> Whatever. Is this a well, I'm just curious if this is a well-known... Spread the word. Spread the word. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. If the wife lit, there he's done. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What time are you coming home? Question. Yeah, I don't know. Spread like you said. Spread the word. Spread the word. I'm glad we're learning it now. Uh, yes, yeah. Then that's fine. If, right. Co- correct. If, if they both have the custom, then much of this falls away. Okay. If right, 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 right. Sorry if that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I think we. Co- oh, sorry. Yes, Shelley. If you have in mind explicitly that you're doing it for him, then that's 100% fine. Yeah, okay. 
Okay, so I think we went through many of the practical permutations. Again, just to be clear, women have an absolute obligation to light the menorah. Uh, many have the custom that a husband and wife, one lights for both. Um, there are those who don't. Women, other women in the household, uh, many of the customs they do light, some of the customs they don't light. Um, in a scenario where you are staying home, then you should, you're actually staying home, even though you're leaving for the meal, you should be lighting in your home, whether you light at plug, after plug, and you make sure it lasts for a half hour afterwards, or you light later in the night. If you're lighting later, set an alarm, okay? Um, and then we had scenarios where you are staying away, you're not at home, and, uh, you know, and you're eating one place, sleeping in another place, then there you should light where you're eating. Um, and then more complicated scenarios where no one's at home, there you should have someone light for you in your home, okay? And we said that a husband and a wife, uh, or even a household, someone in the household could light for you, even if you're not there at all. And again, Ideally, you want to be involved. I want to be, I want to be clear. You know, there, there is a value. I should be clear about that point. Ideally, you, you want everyone to be there when the candles are lit or, or, or lit or at least are still burning, right? Uh, but in a scenario where that's not practical, it is fully okay for one person to light. Even if the other person wasn't there, they fulfill their obligation in that scenario. So much so, we don't really pass in this way, but, but Ravad Yosef says that, that soldiers, uh, their family lighting for them at home, they fulfill their obligation. Okay, that's a scenario where they're not going to come back. They're not even living in their home anymore. They're living in like barracks and whatever. But, but even nonetheless, they're still connected to the home. We don't go that, most Ashkenazim don't go that far, but certainly a family where they are living in the home, if one person's lighting in the home for them, technically they do fulfill their obligation. Yes? You can have, let's say you have a, a child over by Rafa and both you and your child are out and then you have your child like Absolutely, that. absolutely. No, no worse than, than, uh, you know, than, than a stranger coming into the house, which would also, again, Ideally, we don't want to have this. Ideally, we want to set up a scenario where I'm able to light myself, um, but, but in a scenario where, for whatever reason, that's not practical, 100%, a, a, an adult child um, was able to light for, for their parents. Yeah. Yes. Uh, adult, halakhically adult. Yeah, sorry. Uh, 12 or 13. Yes, Ellen. Does it make any difference if you're lighting candles or oil? Is one considered better than the other? Good question. So, so the, the postmen do bring down that olive oil is better. Um, they also bring down, it's important that it's a nice flame. Some people, it depends on the wicks and whatever. Sometimes it's a real challenge to get a, a nice flame. And so some prefer to use like nice candles instead because it's just the flame is, is, is nicer. Okay. Yes. Hey, can you go back and forth with the menhagen? Like, you know, like one year, each one, like the next <laughs> yeah. So it's a good question. You know, one, one of these days we're going to have to do like a full, full out analysis of Minhag and how it works, uh, you know, but uh, it's, 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 it's valuable both, both halachically and I would just say like for a family just to, to like, okay, this is our, you know, it, we spoke about this a little bit last week that, you know, we don't have such strong traditions about Minhag these days for a whole host of reasons, you know, whether it's a Holocaust or a Bali Chuva, you know, there's so many different reasons, but, and, and a lot of travel from one country to another, city to another, where there are different customs. Um, so many people don't really have such established customs, but it's important. It's important for us to, you know, again, it's just so, like psychologically just to have some stability. This is what we're doing and just run with it. Um, yeah, it's, it's tricky when each person goes back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, and that's not a full answer, I know, but, but yeah. Okay, yes? So you're saying girls over Boston are obligated to like. So let's say... So, 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 so again, you could fulfill the obligation on their behalf as, as a parent, um, you know, and if they're embarrassed or whatever, you know, they, they don't have to light, but, but, you know, one, one person could, you know, you could light, but even they're even, it'd probably even be more value. Yeah, they should light. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, there's so much to talk about in Hanukkah and Shemaz I just want to share, leave you with three thoughts uh, when it comes to 
the lighting of the candles and what we're, what this holiday is all about. Uh, Hanukkah, there's endless literature on this. But three thoughts and possible things, you know, with, uh, I don't know, you know, you want to you wanna have a little bit of thought. You know, Hanukkah, when you, when you light the menorah, there, there's, I, I find, more so than other mitzvos, maybe matzah as well, you have like this, those few seconds of quiet while everyone's chewing. So you have a few seconds to think, uh, you know, about what you're actually doing. So candles as well, you have a few seconds as, you know, lighting the candle. It's just like, take advantage of those few seconds. Like, you know, it's, it's a pretty mindless uh, activity. You don't have to put too much thought into to lighting the candle. So it's an opportunity to, to infuse it with some thought. So there's so much to possibly think about. I'll just share with you three thoughts that have been on my mind um, that, that, that might be worth that if they resonate, feel free to contemplate as you're lighting the menorah. So uh, if you turn the page to the second side, we'll start with the Gemara, very, very, very famous Gemara. Um, so the Gemara says, Beishamai says, the first day you light uh, eight candles, and then from then on, you progressively decrease, right? So according to Beishamai, this is one of the most famous debates between Beishamai and Beishillel. Beishamai says eight on the first day, seven on the second, six on the third, etc., etc. Basila says the first day one lights one candle, from then on one progressively increases. And as we all know, the... Normative ruling is like Beis Hillel, okay? Now, what, what is the basis for this, uh, for this debate? So the Gemara tells us that Beis Shammai is following the model of the paros, of the cows, or the bulls, rather, that were brought on Sukkot, okay? On Sukkot, they had, uh, you know, they had 70 bulls that were brought the first day, which represented the 70 nations, and then as Sukkot went on, there were fewer and fewer and fewer until Shemini Atzeres, when there's one animal brought, and so it follows that model of diminishment from, from a lot, to a little, okay? Um, and, and parenthetically, there's a lot of interesting correlation between Sukkot and Hanukkah. Um, there's actually some historic uh, data which describes, actually in the book of Maccabees, which describes them celebrating with Lulavim. Quick tangent, can we do this? Quick tangent, quick, very quick tangent. Um, you know, what Lulavim, right? What, what the Lulav, right? The, the, the palm um, is, uh, so the, Gemara, the, the, the book of Maccabees talks to them celebrating through Lulavim. So, so there's a lot of mystical connections, but historically, uh, it seems like there is, uh, that the Lulav, you know, there's a, there's a medrash that says that one of the reasons we hold the Lulav is we're trying to show that we are victorious in battle. And I always thought it's like this cute thing, you know, like my kid takes the, uh, you know, from the, the toilet paper roll, you know, and they're like, ah, oh, you know, it's a sword, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, you know, the, 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 not the paper towel, right? The paper, sorry, okay, whatever. Uh, yeah, they take the paper towel roll and they're like, it's a sword, so it's a little of, it's a sword, right? The truth is, right, if you actually look in uh, the coins that were coined uh, during the times of the Bar Kokhba revolt, one of the things that they have there is a lulav, is a lulav, right? It's not just a make-believe thing and that they're just holding. No, the point is that this is how victorious armies would celebrate with Lulavim, right? So the notion, so again, there's a lot of mystical explanations, but it would seem also historically Lulavim were actually, uh, you know, used as part of the victory uh, parade uh, during that time. Okay, one way or another, one way or another, sorry, there's a little tangent, but Shabbat Shammai says we follow the, the cow, the bulls that diminish during this time. Basila says uh, there's a general principle of Malin Bekodesh, Vein Moridin. We go up in holiness and we don't go down. So we start with one and then we go higher and higher and higher. We never go down with holiness. We're always climbing. We're always aspiring for more. So Rav Cook has a beautiful, beautiful explanation of, of what, um, of what Beishamai is talking about over here. And he takes this idea in a much, much broader way. You know, the simple understanding is that it starts with 70 and then they're getting destroyed and destroyed and destroyed, right? 70 and then they get knocked down and then get knocked down. And so it shows the victory of the Jewish people over the nations, right? If, if the 70 bulls represent the nations of the world, then their diminishment represents Jewish victory over those nations. Rav Cook says, no, 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 we have it all backward. He says the idea that Shammai really has this universalist, uni, uni, universal, uni, universalist, 
universalistic uh, perspective of, of the world. And what he's describing over here is really the opposite. That it begins, begins with all this disparity, with a wide variety of nations, but with time, we actually move forward to a harmonious messianic era, where actually it goes from all the variety to one, to absolute unity. And the idea isn't the diminishment and the breaking down of those nations. Really what it represents is the falling down of the walls between us and the nations around us. It represents this messianic vision where we are all, where there is this sense of aguda achas. There's a sense of everyone really being united. And that really is, so again, it's not the destruction of the nations. It really is about a world which is all, even with their despair parts, is all actually able to come together. We have a tradition, of course, that when Mashiach comes, who do we rule like? Not Hillel anymore. But Beishamai, and this would actually fit very nicely with that idea that Shammai has this more, like, it's a perspective which is transcending the, the world that we live in where we may not be able to connect to the nations in that same way, but we believe in this vision that ultimately, and, you know, many see the, the persuminisa, the lights at the window or at the doorway is a way of demonstrating to the world the values that we represent. It's not just us doing so, at, you know, in our own, you know, ghetto, but it's really shining that light to others, and that's really what Beishamai is, is teaching. Now, again, we don't like like Beishamai, but still something that I think is, is, uh, is an important idea to think about in Hanukkah in general. Hanukkah really, when you think about it, was the first holiday which represented an enemy which was so much like us. You know, they point out that the earlier enemies of the Jews were usually pagans, right? And there was a, a much broader, much starker distinction between the pagan nations and their beliefs and Judaism and its beliefs. The idea of the, one of the, the challenges of the Greeks was really the notion that, that Greek, you know, we, we talk about the fact that a Torah written in, 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 in Greek writing is actually a kosher Torah, okay? We don't actually do that practically, but there is this notion that, that Yavan represents a certain sophistication, a certain connection uh, to, to Hashem and uh, to the world, and that, that we are, that, 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 that's what made it so compelling. And so really Greece represents a, a challenge which I think is much more relevant to you and I. You know, the challenge that Avram had with the idols around him, I don't know, doesn't relate to me, right? I, I don't, we're not walking around with, with, you know, pagan worship and, and child sacrifice uh, around us. It's not the, the relevant type of challenge. But the Greeks represented a worldview which in so many ways was appealing and beautiful and logical, right? Um, and therefore, there's, it's, the, it's the first holiday where we really grapple with the connection between us and the nations in a much different way. It's not us and them, but rather it's where exactly do we draw the line? How do we walk this tightrope? And therefore, I think Beishamai's idea, even though we don't like that way, but the idea of how we relate to the nations of the world, how do we relate to the society around us, the culture around us, is something I think worth contemplating, at least in the back of our minds, in terms of when we're, when we're lighting the menorah. Another idea, another idea, um, and that is a terminology that's found oftentimes in, uh, in Alanisim and in other places that speak about Hanukkah, is that these, holi- these days were established, lehodot ulahalel. Okay, lehodot ulahalel. We say halel on Hanukkah. What is the difference between hodos and halel? They both mean Thanksgiving. So there is a halacha that we actually only say halel in response to a miraculous act. This, by the way, not for today, but is part of the debate around do we say Hallel or not, the establishment of the state of Israel, right? Because even if it's a great thing that happened to us, do we describe it as a miracle? Some say yes. We say it over here. Some say no. Okay? It's an honest debate about the, the miraculous nature, right? But one way or another, Hallel means full-fledged miracle. Lehodos 
is not that way. Hodos is basically giving thanks for things which are not miraculous. The Ramban, the Ramban writes at the end of Parsha's bow that the reason we have miracles is not for miracles themselves. In some cultures, and some faiths, there's a big emphasis on the miracles. In Judaism, we do reflect on Mitzrayim, but he says we're making a mistake if we reflect on Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and the Exodus for the sake of reflecting on it. He says really the whole idea of thinking about a miracle is to use it as a window into every part of our life. In his beautiful terminology, he says we have the overt miracles to open our eyes to the billions of hidden miracles that take place every day. And so the idea of Lahodos Sahal is, yes, there's the Hanukkah miracle, but it's not about the miracle. The miracle is what we call a Hechi Timsa. It is the impetus. It is the catalyst to remind ourselves of the things that are not, so to speak, miraculous. The regular things, the fact that I'm speaking and you're listening, and you're hearing me, the fact that we're sitting here and alive, right? All the small things in our life, that is the, the goal is for it to be a mirror into everything else. So when we're letting, yes, we're reminding ourselves of the Pach Hashemen, that little bit of light, but it's not only Lahalel, but it's Lahodos Lahal. It's to take the Hilul, it's to take the miraculous and to make it something which is very real to you and me, every part of our life. It's not Hanukkah alone. Hanukkah is the impetus for so much more, being able to see Hashem even in the darkest of places. Okay. One other idea, and this is an idea which speaks to me, may not speak to you, uh, but another idea found from Avkuk, he writes this in Orot HaKodesh, and going back to the Machlokas between Shammai and Hillel, and he says a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful idea. He says that Shammai, when he goes, talks about the diminishment of light, is actually talking about diminishment of Kedusha, diminishment of, of holy light in the world. And there is a very famous concept, a concept called Yeridas Hadoros. All right, the Gemara talks about this. Uh, what, what's the context for this, for this discussion? The context of this discussion, we read us Adoros, is one of the sages, or some, some of the sages of the Talmud saying, if we are, you know, the generation before us were like, they have like these strong terminology, like they were, you know, angels, and we are like, and the next generation was like men, you know, like people, humans, compared to the angels, and we're like, I forgot, like an animal, like we're like donkeys compared to them. Like basically they're saying like, as generations go on, we are so small. Now, if Cook points out that who's speaking in that section? Who's speaking is the Amoraim, the leaders, the teachers. And Rav Cook suggests, it's a bit of a radical idea, a bit of an, almost an anarchist type of idea, but he argues that Yeridas Hadoros is only true when it comes to the leadership. But he says, when it comes to the populace, the Hamon Am, the masses, you and I, all the regular people, right? There, there is actually Aliyat Hadoros. There's actually an elevation of the generations. He says, Shammai's diminishment of light is representative of the leadership of the people. Hillel going higher and also is very much reflective of their worldview. We know what we know about Shammai, a little bit in some ways an elitist. And Hillel much more of someone who is connected to the masses. What he's representing, and they're not arguing, they're focusing on different things. There is a Yeridata de Rhodes. There is a diminishment of light, but there's also an elevation of light. There is, and we can just talk about it historically. You know, people sometimes wax uh, poetic about back in the day how everyone was learning. No one was learning. Back in the day, the amount we, we in this room are, you know, are, are studying is, is, is radically different to what, what, what the amount of Torah study, the amount of knowledge, the, the connection to performance, again, in so many ways has been elevated. The expectation that we, that we have uh, in terms of what a good connection is, 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 is there's, there's an incredible amount of growth, an incredible amount of, of elevation. And that is a reflection of, the, of what Hill is arguing for, is that there is an aliyata de there is an elevation when it comes to you and I. So when we're lighting those candles, and, and my perhaps social critique sometimes, there's a lot of finger pointing about what others are doing or not doing, and what, what Hillel is asking us to do is, don't worry about the, you know, the Ali, the, the Uriata de Rode. There is a diminishment sometimes in leadership or whatever it might be, but, but there is very much a requirement for us to step in, not to look for others and to say, what are we doing to elevate that light? That Hill is reminding us that, yeah, in some ways there is a diminishment. There are people who are not necessarily able to do what they need to do, but that doesn't uh, absolve us from our responsibility. On the contrary, as time goes on, 
the regular person, the regular Joe, as they say, you know, the regular individual, you and I have the responsibility and the power to be able to elevate and not to lose sight of that. And that's so much of the story of Hanukkah is really about people who weren't, you know, what Matisio's position was in that time is a matter of much debate. Was he, you know, he was not exactly looked up. There were, there were other leaders and people. He was not really in the high top, top of the totem pole, but people, the masses stepped up and fought. And that's true physically, but it's also true spiritually that not to wait for others to step up. But as we light those candles, we think about areas that, that things that need to change. Stop looking outside. Look at the mirror. And ask yourself how we could change because there is indeed Aliyah Sadoros and we are elevating and to take advantage of that elevation of the growth of generations, take advantage of that beautiful light. Have a beautiful Hanukkah. Have a beautiful Hanukkah. Um, next week, we will learn, but we're going to have to start a little bit later because there is, oh boy, it's a long davening. It's Rosh Chodesh as well. We have a brunch. Um, nine o'clock, would that work for people? Nine o'clock? Maybe we'll do, we'll, we'll learn at nine o'clock. Okay. Whoever could be here, could be here. If not, not. we're going to start at nine o'clock because that going to be a while. Okay. Have a great day. Have